studio with me today. I have a couple of guests, and uh, we'll bring a couple of other experts in by telephone. Uh, with me um, here in the studio is Dana Morris, who's a Marine Extension Associate with the Sea Grant and Cooperative Extension Program. Morning, Morning. Dana. Hey, Paul. Morning. How are you? Good, thanks. Good, Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. And Sarah Redman is a new arrival to the uh, what we call our Marine Extension team, again with Sea Grant. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Sarah recently uh, finished her graduate degree at the University of Connecticut, where she was doing a lot of work with uh, the technology behind growing um, various species of seaweed. So we'll tap into her expertise um, through the course of this hour. Later on, I'll be bringing in a gentleman from uh, the Portland area named Tolif Olson, who is the principal uh, partner in what is called Ocean Approved. It's a commercial company that's up and actively growing kelp and I think other seaweeds as well. And uh, Mr. Olson has a, a long experience with uh, both commercial uh, fishing and aquaculture here in Maine and now is focused on seaweed with his company, Ocean Approved. So we'll call him in in a little while and later in the hour as well, uh, another grower out there who's doing been doing some different things with aquaculture and now is getting involved in the seaweed side, uh, Matt Moretti. And he, I believe, is in the Casco Bay area. So we'll We'll bring him in and learn from him about his challenges. And once again, we'll invite your participation later in the program. Um, I think we'll we'll try to start, I'm going to ask Sarah to try to characterize for us really how seaweed has been uh, part of, you know, society, whether it's over in Asia or here in North America, uh, wild harvested um, and used for lots of different things. Sarah, can you just talk a little bit about what you know regarding the use of seaweed and some of its um, uses besides eating it. Yeah, so seaweeds have always been utilized by coastal peoples um, for as long as uh, we have records for. Um, it's been used for food, fertilizer, and fodder. Uh, it's very high in vitamins and trace minerals, so it's useful for both plants, animals, and humans. Uh, worldwide, it's a dietary staple for people in Asian countries and over in the Western world, it's um, always been used in maritime cultures, both uh, in their gardens as fertilizer and to feed the animals and then for uh, local foods. Okay. And how that's typically been harvested just as a regular standing crop. How, how is it harvested and does it you know, does it r reproduce and, and maintain itself in the intertide? Is that primarily where all this comes from? Yeah, so there's a number of different seaweeds. Um, they're characterized by their photosynthetic pigments. Um, they're put into three groups, greens, reds, and browns. Uh, there are seaweeds in the intertidal as well as the subtidal. Uh, there's a long history of um, heart wild harvest, and this is a sustainable practice where if you remove the outside blades, uh, the plant is able to regenerate itself. Um, there's a long history of this both here in Maine and in Canada. Um, but we're looking at different ways to cultivate this incredible resource as we find more and more uses for it. Okay, so cultivating it, it kind of takes it from a wild harvest to really an agrarian practice. and. And uh, um, <clears throat> Maine has a, a pretty long history now of successful aquaculture of different types here. I wonder, Dana, if you can just characterize for the listeners what's gone on, say, in the last 20 years of different 
species, and um, I think this will cue up why we're um, thinking that we can integrate seaweed culture into that. Sure. Um, yeah, the last uh, 20 or 30 years in Maine has seen a pretty good growth and diversification of all the, the uh, plants and now animals that we're growing in uh, Maine coastal waters. Um, people are, are probably fairly familiar with uh, the salmon industry, and uh, for uh, an industry of a fairly small footprint, uh, it produces uh, a lot of product for the market, and that product has a lot of value. And on the the shellfish side, um, I guess what I'd what I'd call maybe like the modern age of of Maine shellfish, maybe starting back in the late '70s or early '80s. Um, it's been uh, sort of a slow but steady increase where uh, we have a number of farms around the state growing uh, oysters and blue mussels uh, particularly, but there's diversification happening uh, in that area as well with uh, things like hard clams uh, and sea scallops and, and now uh, another species sort of uh, that's being uh, trialed is uh, razor clams. And so... Um, and particularly, like I would say, oh, the last 15 years or so, there's been a real diversification both in terms of species um, and the locations where people are growing uh, and also the types of person uh, that has become an aquaculture producer. Um, it used to be that um, academ um, students and academicians that go to school and, and become marine biologists, uh, a number of those people who came through the humane system decided to start shellfish farms, and, and several of them are still in business. Uh, but nowadays, you see people coming to the industry from uh, a varied um, set of backgrounds as well, uh, including from a variety of um, uh, marine industries, and including fishing. Great. Thank you. That's Dana Morris from the Marine Extension Team of the University of Maine. He and Sarah Redman are here, both members of that team, uh, in the studio here on Talk of the Towns, talking about... Um, aquaculture in Maine, and specifically seaweed. I think we now have on the telephone with us uh, Mr. Tala Folson, who's a, a principal participant in the Ocean Approved Company that is um, actively growing uh, seaweed at a commercial level in the Casco Bay area. Good morning, Tala. For you there? Yes, good morning. I am. Nice to have you on board. Thanks for, um, for uh, being available. Um, Tala, if I, I've known you for several years. I'm, I was trying to remember your how you got into um, where you're at now. I think you were growing some mussels for a while, and I, if I'm not mistaken, you were doing com commercial fishing for a bit, too. Can you talk a little bit about yourself and how you got to what you're doing today? Yes, I can. Uh, that's, that's accurate, Paul. I have a very strong background in commercial fishing. I do have a little bit of time in the food industry also. Opened a mussel company in 1997, was the first company specifically to grow rope-grown mussels in the state of Maine. Sold out of that a couple of years ago, I opened a company in 2006, Ocean Approved, with the plan to do commercial seaweed harvesting in Maine and incorporating it into the aquaculture venue. Okay. Talk a bit more about what Ocean Approved is doing and, and, and where you are. Well, Ocean Approved has successfully taken sugar kelp, Saccharina latissima, from microscopic to the table now. We're working on the same process with Alaria indigitata. Uh, the beauty of moving it into the aquaculture main before there's a problem with over-harvesting is that it keeps us ahead of the curve. Traditionally, fisheries become successful and then, unfortunately, tend to become overfished. And so we're trying to work ahead of the curve on that, and aquaculture also gives us a lot of quality control. 
we have a higher percentage of top quality kelps. Okay, so the sugar kelp we eat, right? And uh, I'm going to ask you in a minute about the products that come from that. But Alaria and Digitata, you know, pretend, pretend for a minute that I don't know what that is. Well, Alaria is the equivalent of wakame. That's what we see in the seaweed salads in the okay. sushi bars. It's probably one of the more familiar kelps. And then kombu is a, a kind of an overall term for your larger brown kelps. And Digitata, sugar kelp could come under that, but Digitata definitely comes under that. And those are names that people are more familiar with. But these are three species that are native to the Gulf of Maine. Okay. All right. I get it. Um, the, uh, and, and so the products that folks might find from your operation as well as others that are perhaps growing, um, I assume it's like the seaweed salad you mentioned that you get at a restaurant. Um, what other things are you doing with uh, product development? And uh, I know... You uh, you have an interest in the culinary world, so I think you've done some creative things yourself with some of this. Talk a bit about that. Well, the biggest step I took is I decided to take to change the whole way people look at seaweed. Traditionally, seaweed is sold as a dried vegetable. My favorite comparison is a dried pea compared to a frozen pea. We've eliminated the drying stage and gone directly to a cut, blanched, ready-to-eat process. Designing a cut that fits the plant textures and sizes to make it easy to use and to give it a pleasing texture. Also, by not drying it first, it retains this really beautiful green color. Even though it is a brown algae, the chlorophyll goes off when you blanch it, and it turns green naturally, which is just more appealing to the eye and the palate. Okay. That's neat. Um, at some point here, we'll invite you to give... Uh contact information or perhaps your company website in case people are interested in, in seeing more images of that. I wonder if I can bring Sarah into the conversation and we'll talk a bit about how this is done. Um, I mean, Sarah, you did your graduate work on you know everything from the laboratory to getting out on, on, the, on the water. Can you try to draw that picture for listeners about, you know, what's it like? Do you, you don't plant seeds. I mean, I'm a gardener, so I don't go plant a seed and, and get a piece of seaweed. Mm -hmm. Talk a bit about how that happens, and, and then I want to try to convey to the listeners what this looks like in a grow-out operation out on the water. Right. So it's very similar um, to planting a seed. Instead of a seed, you have a spore, and uh, the life cycle of the kelp is separated into the large macroscopic plants that you see in the in the water and then a tiny microscopic stage that's the gametophyte stage. So what you do is you obtain a reproductive piece of kelp and you'll see the reproductive source tissue and from that piece you'll be able to release microscopic spores. The spores are settled onto what we call seed string um, and from there the spore will attach and develop into either male or female gametophytes and when these become reproductive um, they produce the juvenile kelp blades. So we're able to take the spores, attach them onto the string in the laboratory, and then get our juvenile plants. And when these plants are about one to two millimeters long, we can then put them out into the sea and then they'll grow out. And what's interesting about kelp is it's a winter crop. So in Maine, this is a, a very interesting um, opportunity for us because we have a lot of downtime in the winter and we were able to produce this uh, wonderful crop and get it in in the fall and out in the spring. Okay, and and the operation on the water, Dana, what's that look like? 
Uh, it's it's simple and elegant and kind of fascinating. This, this uh, working in the in the realm of seaweed is new to me, so. Um, uh, watching what the process is has been has been great to see, uh, but essentially the the string that Sarah mentioned is wrapped around uh, a, a pipe like a PVC pipe maybe uh, three inches in diameter, and if you picture um, a piece of lobster pot warp being passed through that pipe, um, you tie one end of the seed string onto uh, the rope essentially, and then you slide that pipe down the length of the rope, and as the string unspools itself from the pipe, it essentially wraps itself around that that uh, back line, that long line there. Um, the kind of like you're flying a kite or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you can do, you can seed out uh, a lot of string fairly quickly. Um, and what happens is uh, as the kelps begin to grow, uh, their whole fast, their root system uh, does what they call stepping off. It steps off that little kite string, if you will, and starts to grab onto uh, the uh, the larger diameter rope so that then when you start to have a real mass of kelp growing along the line, it has something robust to hold onto. Right. Okay. So back to you, Tolliff, down in, in Casco Bay. Where is your operation? And, and you have these ropes or warps, as Dana mentions, um, with, uh, you know, juvenile... Um, kelp and then they they grow out. How do you suspend those between structures and and um, you know what does that mean to that that local harbor or cove where that might be located? Well, it's really fascinating. We actually work as far east as the Blue Hill salt ponds right now, not just in Casco Bay. Oh, I didn't but know The that. neat thing is, we're growing a vegetable using no fresh water. We use no arable or tillable land. We're adding zero fertilizers. And we're sequestering CO2, which is creating ocean acidification, while releasing oxygen, similar to uh, plant, uh, land-based plants with the photosynthesis. And so the beauty of this is you're actually improving water quality or maintaining the right water quality as you grow this vegetable. As Sarah mentioned, it's really fascinating, too, that kelp has evolved, so it's counter-cyclical to most plants and thrives in the wintertime in times of frigid cold and low light. There's less phytoplankton in the wintertime, which means there's more nitrogen available in the water, and kelp has adapted over the millennia to grow accordingly. I don't think it's changed much in four or 500 million years. So it's a really fascinating way to, uh, to get a food source working, and it also has huge potential down the line as an alternative fishery or supplemental fishery for many who are active on the water. Okay. So something you just said, Tolliff, reminds me of, of some initiatives that I think you and your partner Paul Dobbins there have explored, and are, or if not, you're looking at it. And that's the bioremediation potential of kelps in otherwise um, uh, perhaps polluted areas from wastewater treatment plants and such. Can you talk a little bit about that potential? Absolutely. This potential would be totally separate from the food industry. With the food industry, we tend to pick areas that are open to shellfish harvest. That way we know we're in extremely clean water. But we've got a huge problem with over, um, runoff and from sewer plants and from urban areas. Portland, I know, is only about 87%, I think, compliant under the Clean Water Act. And one of the ways that municipalities are looking at possibly picking up that last little bit of burden is instead of collecting it before it's created, we already know it exists and it's hard to capture, why not pick it up afterwards as it hits the water? You could actually use kelp as a prophylactic barrier, 
picking up excess nitrogen, phosphates, and other runoff pollutants, and then using that kelp as a potential biomass for, say, ethanol or butanol, an alternative to corn or soy beans, which are already in more prevalent in the food chain. Okay, that's very interesting. Tal, if you can stay on with us, I'd appreciate that. I think in a, in a couple minutes we're going to bring in another uh, grower. In fact, you may know him, Matt Moretti, um, will be coming in on the line as well. And as I understand it, Matt is um, getting into uh, culturing of seaweed in combination with um, muscle culture. Um, Dana, as we uh, as we go to to get Matt on the phone, um, or maybe Sarah, the the other. Uh, potential use of um, macrophytes or seaweeds is in um, biofuel. I mean, nowadays there's all kinds of looking around for different energy sources, and we've, you know, we've got a whole interest in the west of the United States looking at corn and other kinds of, uh, you know, land-based plants. Um, as I understand it, there's also investigations going on to see if there's a potential source of biofuel from seaweeds. Can you comment on any of that research that's going on? Um, well, I think Talif just alluded to it, but um, seaweed is an interesting um, biofuel source because it grows so quickly. Uh, it doesn't require any inputs, and we can clean up our coastal water um, by growing seaweed and then pulling it out. So we're able to pick up that excess nutrient in the water and pull it out and harvest it for something. So um, Talif may be able to add something to that. Yeah, it's really interesting. As Sarah pointed out, it grows rapidly. So you're looking at a biomass that's easily controlled, easily measured. We're involved in a couple studies right now to actually qualify and quantify what the uptake would be, and it's pretty amazing what this plant can do for the environment. Once again, I can't help but go back to trees in the atmosphere and the need for oxygen. Also, your upland crops, your corn, your soy, etc., they're actually part of the problem in that you use phosphates and nitrates to fertilize these and any time we have a rain event like last weekend, all that fertilizer rushes downhill and it ends up in the ocean. So this is a great way to utilize that and to neutralize some of the detrimental effects. Wonderful. For the listeners, um, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns here at Community Radio, WERU. Thanks for having your radio on this morning. My name's Paul Anderson. I'm guest hosting today. Ron Beard is away. And uh, we're having a conversation about uh, seaweed here in Maine and the harvesting of it and the culturing of it and uh, some of its um, diverse uses. Um, we're going to get into some conversation uh, shortly with um, uh, with some growers who are out there and learn a bit about the challenges and opportunities they have with what we call integrated multi-trophic aquaculture. In the studio I have with me Dana Morse and Sarah Redman. Both are members of the University of Maine's Marine Extension Team, which is a partnership between uh, Cooperative Extension and the Maine Sea Grant Program. On the telephone, Mr. Tolliff Olson is calling in from the Ocean Approved uh, Company down uh, based out of the Portland area, but as we just learned, they're, uh, they're involved in different operations along the coast. And I think we now have on, on the phone Matt Moretti, who's a, a aquaculturist in the Casco Bay area. Good morning, Matt. Are you there? Good morning, Paul. Good to hear you. Thanks for joining us. appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. I think you probably know everybody on the phone on 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 the show with us today. Um, I do absolutely. You want to tell us a little bit about your your background and how you got into um, uh, what you're currently culturing there and where you're located? Uh, well, I um, am a mussel farmer. Um, 
We grow Bangs Island mussels in Casco Bay, and we're located in Portland. We, um, we've been growing. Uh, the company itself is about uh, over 10 years old, and I've been doing it for two years now. And recently, our most recent development is we're actually growing some kelp with the help of Ocean Approved and Sea Grant um, between our rafts that we, we grow the mussels from. Um, and uh, we are just about to harvest our first crop. Okay. How did that go? How did um, it look? It, it looks pretty big. We definitely have a lot of biomass. Um, the, it's a good first run, I think, and uh, I think we've definitely learned some, some good lessons for growing it better in the future. Right. So, Dana, if you can elaborate a little bit on, on what it is that Matt is doing, is it's essentially an example of integrated multi-trophic aquaculture, which is a big, long string of words, but um, could mean many different things, I think, if we look at the different kinds of critters that, that we might try to cultivate in one farm. Yeah. So um, the, uh, the IMTA words, uh, integrated multi-trophic aquaculture, is really just sort of a fancy way to say uh, recycling. Um, plants and animals, uh, of course, are composed of um, different kinds of compounds. And as uh, some animals uh, live and die, they, they kind of return those, those compounds back to the environment. And uh, in some cases, those can be good. In some cases, if you have too much of that, that can be bad. So in the case of um, multi-trophic aquaculture, uh, using uh, multiple trophic or, or feeding levels, uh, the idea is to take um, the nutrients that either uh, plants and animals are made of or what they're fed uh, and make sure that they're utilized to the maximum uh, level. So in the case of... Uh, or what we might call a, a fully integrated uh, sea farm, you might have a component that's fed, uh, like an Atlantic salmon. Uh, and because you're adding feed to the system, that means you're adding nutrients. And those, uh, those salmon are going to uh, eat that food, and then they'll pass along their wastes, which will be either dissolved in the water or might be um, sort of in a particulate form. And so if you combine that muscle farm with uh, something that can take up the particulate matter, uh, like a filter feeding muscle, for example, they can help to utilize that, uh, that waste from the salmon and essentially act as, uh, uh, use it as feed. Whereas the dissolved uh, parts uh, might be a lot of nitrogenous kind of compounds. Um, those can be used by marine plants uh, like kelp. And so essentially what you have is a system where uh, the different animals uh, complement one another so that you get uh, good production with uh, a, sort of like a maximum of use of, of any of the nutrients that you add into the system and, and making sure that the... Um, any kind of uh, waste products that come out of those crops are, are at a minimum level. Okay. All right. So that, that um, I want to come back to Matt. If you can talk a little bit about the, uh, the challenges that you've you know, faced in, in, in putting this all together. You were a muscle grower, and then all of a sudden you're trying to grow plants. And um, what has that transition meant for you? in terms of maybe the, you know, the footprint of your lease and uh, any uh, both technological or policy hoops you've had to jump through. Any comments on that? Well, it's been, it hasn't been as hard as it could have been. We, um, the major issue is, is the spatial issue. It takes a lot of area to grow 
will grow a lot of muscles, but it takes a lot of area to grow a lot of seaweed in particular because you need to have seaweed needs to get that sunlight to grow. Um, so integrating the, the seaweed or kelp into the muscle system was, was the biggest issue, but we found a good way to do it, which was stringing the lines between our existing rafts. We had probably half of our lease space is unused just because of the way that we have to moor the rafts. So that, that was a lot of empty space that just was going to waste. So we figured out we could string the lines of kelp between the rafts and take up, use that empty space. And also, um, there are ways of growing kelp on long lines um, with their own anchors. And I think that's going to be our next, next um, step for growing, growing kelp that way. Uh, in terms of permitting, permitting was actually not as bad as it could have been as well because we had an existing lease site in Casco Bay, and the only thing that was necessary was to get a, an amendment to that lease to add another species. And kelp is a very low-impact species. It's actually, as I'm sure you've heard, beneficial to the local ecosystem, so it wasn't uh, much of a big deal at all to get that amendment to grow kelp along with mussels. Okay. And that's over all overseen by the Department of Marine Resources? Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. What, what's the interaction like with other marine users in, in your area? Um, well, there are a lot of traditional users of, of the ocean in Casco Bay, a lot of um, lobstermen, traditional fishermen, and uh, recreational users as well as um, uh, landowners on the shore, um, on the oceanfront shore. And um, I think that we are a good addition to, to the area. We uh, diversify. Um, <coughs> the industry a little bit, and since I've been doing it, we haven't had any um, negative interactions with any other uh, any other users of the water. It's just we're a part of the part of Casco Bay now. Well, good. Um, thanks, Matt, and congratulations on your success. I wish you uh, further success as you diversify your, your approach down there. Um, I'm going to let you go because I'm going to need the phone line to invite other listeners to call in and ask us some questions. But I appreciate your your time this morning. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, you're, again, listeners, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're going to pause for a moment here, and um, when we come back, we'll uh, begin to um, take some of your calls and uh, explore some other themes around seaweed and seaweed aquaculture here in Maine.
Welcome back to Talk of the Towns this uh, this morning. This is Paul Anderson sitting in as a guest host this week. I, I run the Sea Grant program at the University of Maine, and I also, uh, working in partnership with Cooperative Extension, uh, help to uh, um, lead what we call our Marine Extension team. We're here talking today about um, the developments of uh, seaweed aquaculture, other forms of aquaculture that are happening here along Maine's coast. And uh, we have about a half hour left. Uh, I'll introduce our, our guests in a moment, but I invite you to uh, give us a call and ask your questions and see if you want to be part of this conversation. The phone number to reach us in the studio is 866-625-9378. And we do have a caller. What's your name and what town are you calling from, please? Uh, I'm Fred. I'm calling from Tenants Harbor. Morning, Fred. And uh, some years ago, a funny-looking boat with a uh, pretty long, skinny arm uh, was in Long Cove here, uh, where I'm, I'm looking out over now and scooping up, I guess, the, the most common seaweed, uh, rockweed, the big tough stuff. Mm-hmm and uh, putting it in bags and, and tying the bags to a mooring out in the middle of the little bay here. And I uh, just wonder uh, if there's any agreement uh, generally about how much, because uh, this, this, there was, uh, you know, uh, with any resource, people who are near it on the water or on the land uh, can be concerned about over-harvesting or what they perceive to be over-harvesting. Right. Right. So, so the question being, in the wild harvest, in that case of rockweed, which I presume has been done in different ways and over the years, how do we know um, if we're not taking too much? I mean, it serves a uh, an important role in the habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Sarah, I wonder if you can comment on what are the rules in place for governing wild harvest of rockweed? Do you know? Yeah, so if you're a seaweed harvester, you have to obtain a license from DMR um, to be a harvester. And uh, for rockweed, they have a a harvesting guideline where they're supposed to only remove a certain percentage of the uh, biomass of the area. Um, And the way that they remove the rockweed is a sustainable harvest, so they're only taking the outside portions of the plant and leaving the base of it to regenerate. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is something that uh, the Maine Seaweed Council uh, and DMR is going to be working together to um, make sure that this resource is uh, sustainable and uh, we don't reach any kind of over-harvesting issues. Um, Obviously, nobody wants um, an over-harvesting situation. So every everything that you see out there, all the harvesting that's done, is done um, under certain guidelines to maintain sustainability. Mm. Well, uh, I, I've noticed a tremendous amount of rockweed around here now, but I know that uh, uh, with fish, with anything, that once it gets, once an industry gets going, it can go from uh, a lot of uh, uh, plenty to the opposite. So that's that's just why I raised this question. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, thank and well, and with rockweed in particular, um, it, it is uh, harvested sustainably, and it has been uh, for a long time now. It's it's the way in which they harvest it, so they're not taking the whole plant; they're just taking Great. the outside. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for your call, Fred. Yeah, as I understand it, I mean, there's always need for more science and research on these things. The uh, the Sea Grant program, in fact, several years ago, funded an investigator who was looking at just how much of that plant. 
um, do you need to leave? And I think the rules in place were informed by that science, not to say that that was an absolute answer, but somewhere around 17 or 18 inches, isn't it, from the, from the hold fast or the root, wherein if you took above that, the plant, you know, branches and, and uh, continues to grow and propagate, much like when I pinched the tops of the basil plants in my garden, they, they continue to come back, right? Sort of like that. But, yeah, I mean, the qu questioner, the, um, the caller, kind of bringing up that concern about this uh, material in the wild, anyway, having a, a role in the habitat and being careful not to uh, remove it all and do, um, you know, lasting damage is a, that's an important issue. Uh, you are tuned to Talk of the Towns, and uh, the phone line is open, although I think somebody's calling in now. I'll give you the number if you want to engage in the conversation. It's 866-625-9378, and we do have a caller on the line. Good morning. Could you give me your name and what town you're calling from? Sonny uh, from Penobscot. Hi. And I was wondering if there's been any kind of a study done on the effect that this will have on reestablishing uh, the sea urchin population uh, because sea urchins feed on kelp and seaweed. Yeah. And it's been declining over the last, you know, decade. Yeah. And I, I was just wondering if, if this would have a positive impact, impact on that. Well, that's a good question. You want to... Um, we hope so. <laughs> uh, okay. I, th I think that uh, it's an interesting dynamic, the urchins and the the kelp populations. Um, with the decline of the urchin population, you see the return of the kelp beds. Um, and then with the return of the kelp beds, you have more food, and the hope is you'll have the return of the urchins. Um, sea urchin aquaculture is actually an interesting area of research uh, that we're looking at in Maine right now. And with this new technology of being able to grow kelp as food for urchins, uh, we may be able to... Um, culture them or or sort of be able to control their quality by being able to feed them um, at some point. Uh, this is in the research phase, but uh, it's really exciting because the the two cer certainly go side by side. And um, with, you know, technology of being able to grow the food, perhaps we can look at enhancing both wild populations and maybe cultivating some in the future. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Very good. Thanks for your call, Tony. Uh, I have in the studio with me Dana Morse and Sarah Redman from the uh, Marine Extension team at the University of Maine. On the phone, we still have uh, Tolliff Olson. You still out there, Tolliff? I am, Paul, and I think this would be a time to mention. We hear a lot of controversy you know, about aquaculture and commercial fishing. As a lifelong waterman, commercial fisherman, and aquaculturist, what aquaculture really is is just an extension of existing fisheries, but it's a, the newest version of equipment. And any time you bring in new equipment... There's always some conflict with the old, but there's plenty of room for all the industries to exist together and adapt to the new equipment, which actually opens up more opportunities for a lot of the existing fisheries. Okay, good point. We do have another caller calling in. Good morning. Thanks for calling. What's your name and what town are you from? Yes, good morning. I'm calling from Scott. My name is Jane, and I used to live in Washington County. I grew up there. And uh, we used to harvest the seaweed along the shore after storms yeah. to put on our gardens. But my question is a little bit more difficult in terms of just sustainable harvesting. 
You know, aquaculture has a lot of genetically modified uh, species going into it, and from salmon to haddock. And I'm wondering if there's any genetic modification going on with the new approach to uh, encourage seaweed beds. That's all. Thank you for your call, Sarah. Oh, no, not not that I've ever heard of. No, and um, especially for for Maine, you know, we're certainly just looking at our unadulterated native species and just trying to figure out how to how to culture them. So, I don't I don't know of any kind of genetic modifications for that. If I recall, I think there was a research study several years ago here in Maine that was looking at non-native species of some uh, seaweed to grow, and there were certainly concerns and probably legitimate concerns as to whether we wanted to be dabbling with species from another part of the world and, and the potential of them becoming invasive and, and, and a problem that way. As I understand it, they didn't even like it here, and they didn't grow well, and that's probably okay. Um, so, so Sarah's saying that, that largely we're taking you know, wild spores, I guess, from from what we have here and getting them to grow in culture and then putting them out. I suspect like any agricultural um, approach, it's possible to, to breed for, you know, and select for better growing and better tasting and better product like we have as we've developed um, many of our agricultural products. But uh, uh, I guess the short answer to your question is that, that there's no you know, real genetic modification going on in this um, sector of aquaculture. But thank you for your call. Uh, the phone line is open if you want to join us. We have a f- uh, 15 more minutes or so here on Talk of the Towns. The number in the studio is 866-625-9378. Thank you for listening this morning. It's an interesting topic about the culturing of, of seaweed and and um, a wild harvest of seaweed and what it can be used for. Um, I'll go back to, oh, we have another call coming in. Thank you for calling. What's your name and what town are you calling from? Hi, this is Tim O from Brooklyn. I'm just calling to, to see if there's a maybe an online resource that can give a nutrient breakdown for um, various seaweeds, for both for um, human consumption and also for uh, for gardening, for mulch, like what, what to it, what sort of minerals and and you know compounds we're, we can expect to to get from any of them? Um, you can check out North American Kelp. They actually have a, a really great website. They're a company um, that produce they produce uh, fertilizers from rockweed in Maine. Um, he has a lot of information on his website. You might be able to find what you're looking for. Okay, one, one, I had a, a question. I remember eelgrass, well, a previous caller mentioned the, the stuff that comes ashore after a storm, and I remember getting lots of eelgrass, and I just didn't, I, I never seemed to find out. I, I used it, and it was useful, but I wasn't sure what, how much it was actually adding to the soil afterwards. But thanks, I'll look on the kelp site. So that's North American kelp. I suspect Googling that will get you there. Tall, if I wonder, do you folks have resources about, you know, the nutrient value of eating seaweed in you know compared to your broccoli or something well we do have one of the interesting things about the ocean is it dissolves all the nutrients equally throughout the water soil over the year leaches you leach out the nutrients and it's hard to replace them with fertilizers you try but you don't get the full balance kelp is an interesting vegetable and in that it grows in that environment and uses those nutrients to build the plant 
We like to compare it to a multivitamin with fiber. It is so loaded with trace elements and minerals that are difficult to get from land-based plants. And then it also has a lot of the benefits of a regular plant. Uh, we have one kelp that has more fiber than spinach. We have another one that has more iron, another one that has more calcium. These plants are loaded with really good vitamins, nutrients, minerals that are difficult to get out of your land-based plants. Okay, thanks. We have another caller coming in. Uh, good morning. What's your name and what town are you calling from? Uh, my name's Joe. I'm from Rockland. Hi, Joe. And um, my question is, I'm, uh, I, I guess I can say I'm a little bit, I'm sort of semi-retired, but I still, still need to make money, and I love spending time in my dory out on the water. Nice. And I'm wondering, is it possible to make a couple hundred dollars a week harvesting seaweed, or is the licensing and everything else just too much for a small-time operation like that? I might give that to Dana. Talk about, you know, interesting other kinds of uh, fishermen and others in the industry, too. Yeah. Um, I think it's a possibility. The, the economics is something that we're actually trying to uh, get a better handle on at the moment. There are certainly people that uh, harvest uh, seaweed commercially now, and so there are, uh, you know, existing business models that are kind of fit that. With respect to the cultured um, uh, product, that's partly what uh, one of the projects that we're working on right now uh, concerns, because the market is looking for a very high-quality product of the right size and of the right uh, cleanliness, if you will, without any kind of uh, fouling organisms on it and stuff like that. Uh, and so that's a work in progress. So, um, and it's, it's also uh, a process of either the harvester or the grower getting together with the people in the marketplace to understand what the market wants. Um, and so I would suggest that if, uh, that if you're thinking about this, uh, spending some time with companies like either Ocean Approved or Maine Coast Sea Vegetables uh, or the other companies that harvest seaweed commercially around the coast, that would be a valuable set of conversations to have just so you get more uh, familiar with what buyers are looking for in terms of product quality. Now, speak a little bit about the capitalization requirements here. I mean, in the suite of aquaculture options, you know, we know that fin fish and salmon aquaculture is a very intensive and a very expensive operation to get into. Um, we think that some of the shellfish approaches are somewhat less. How does seaweed and, you know, putting in a raft and getting the ropes and stuff, how does that compare to all that? Uh, it's actually fairly, uh, fairly low in terms of uh, the financial bars to entry as far as I can see. There's still permitting that you have to do through the Department of Marine Resources uh, and all that is, um, uh, that's necessary and it's there for a reason. Um, but as far as uh, equipment uh, and other uh, capital costs, relative to shellfish culture and certainly finfish culture, uh, it's still pretty handleable. Uh, when I talk to a new uh, or a prospective shellfish grower or someone who is uh, interested in perhaps growing seaweed, uh, part of my advice usually goes something like, definitely start because that's how, uh, how you learn things, but start small. And so with seaweed, I think it's very possible to start small so that you can begin to get some knowledge and, and um, get your feet wet, as it were. Okay, are we getting close to your answer, Joe? I think we lost it, or he may have taken the answer offline. Thanks for your call. Um, certainly, you know, for all listeners, these kinds of, uh, you know, technological um, questions and um, 
I guess what we call technology transfer is in the lexicon of what we at Sea Grant do. So Dana and Sarah are very much working both with with existing growers and other community members and people that might get into this kind of a thing, as well as other issues along Maine's coast. So I would urge you to um, to uh, you know learn about the Maine Sea Grant program. You can find us on the web, and uh, all of our contact information and some of the work that we do is out there. We frequently develop fact sheets that are um, uh, you know, specific to certain issues, and uh, this being a new initiative for the Maine Sea Grant program, I suspect in the coming months or years we'll be developing a, a fact sheet or two just to answer some of those questions that Joe was asking. We have a few more minutes on uh, here on Talk of the Towns and can take your calls. Uh, the number to join us in the conversation is 866-625-9378. Thanks for listening this morning. Um, I'm going through my list of things, trying to make sure we get to uh, some of these other um, questions around around seaweed. Um, I, I wondered, Tal, if, if if you could talk to us about the, the the opportunity that Maine might have in in terms of a domestic market and and our proximity to you know the the Northeast Beltway, so to speak, and. And if, if that's an important element of your company's business model. Well, it is. Worldwide, seaweeds actually, I think, are the leaders of the aquaculture industry. I think in the best year a couple of years ago, 17 million metric tons with a gate value of almost $7 billion were raised overseas. Maine has a very unique coastline in that it's perfect for kelp, wild harvest, and aquaculture, and the proximity to the markets allowed us to go to a new presentation of the kelp, which was the fresh frozen vegetable as opposed to the dried, which is, uh, it appeals to a larger market segment. So this is a huge opportunity for the state, for existing fishermen and people who would like to work on the water, or folks like Joe who just called in, whether it be some wild harvest or moving into the aquaculture vein. I think we're going to continue to see a huge growth in the demand for these products. Um, I am going to have to sign off at this point. I've got an obligation at 11 okay. o'clock. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Well, I appreciate your time this morning, Tolliff. That's Mr. Tolliff Olson from Ocean Approved um, Seaweed Company down in the Casco Bay area. You can probably find them online just simply by uh, typing Ocean Approved into your search engine. Um, Dana, as we begin to wrap up our conversation, um, um, I wonder... How you how you feel this um, integrated aquaculture opportunity and 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 what it what it might bring for Maine's aquaculture industry and and how seaweed in particular might might be an important hook for for helping it to grow of course within a reasonable scale that our coastline and our communities can uh, enjoy and prosper at while also um, uh, satisfying concerns about too much. Yeah, um, that's a good question, and and I think your mention of scale is very important as well. the uh, The coast of Maine is a uh, very heavily used area. Yeah. Um, even though you might be out there sailing one day and you can't see anybody at that particular time, but there's a lot of uses. So making sure um, the wild harvest and the culture of seaweeds kind of fits in with that that myriad of other uses um, is important. Um, I, I think there's some really um, really important potential aspects to seaweed that that help to kind of almost make it like a, a missing link. And, and uh, one example, a, a brief example that I'll use is um, 
I, I hope this illustrates things. Is I heard a story this morning on the radio about um, a dairy farm up north of Bangor that's that's capturing manure and waste off of a pretty sizable dairy farm, and they are using uh, some pretty high tech uh, methods to generate energy out of that and then reuse the waste um, as bedding and and I think uh, options for other compost. So what that does is it both manages uh, manages the sort of the nutrients that are coming coming out of that farm, but it also makes the farm more profitable. Um, and so I think that integration of new technology, new products, new approaches is really important to our aquaculture and harvesting industries. And so with seaweeds, um, they just feel like potentially the missing link, both in terms of nutrient management so that we're keeping our, our coastline clean, so that we have more diversified products for our growers and harvester, harvesters to meet the market, um, and that we have uh, opportunities that will fit other locations around the coast and fit people of other um, uh, backgrounds, if you will. So Sarah mentioned the wintertime uh, nature of kelp. Uh, that might fit into the the uh, year-round production schedule, if you will, of a commercial fisherman who might put the lobster uh, pots on the bank during the winter months. Uh, maybe maybe producing kelp might help to uh, fill that year-round um, income stream. Hmm. Okay, that's, that's a good point. Um, we do have a few more minutes if anybody wants to give us a call. We have a phone line open at 866-625-9378. Sarah, I'm going to um, play off of what Dana was just talking about. and I mean, it occurs to me that here in the United States and probably the world, we've made uh, a lot of progress in agriculture, terrestrial agriculture. And, you know, the University of Maine being the land-grant institution certainly has a lot of expertise, both through cooperative extension and through some of the other uh, academic and research departments up there for, you know, doing things like forestry practices and, and management of watersheds and and uh, nowadays with organic agriculture and some of the integrated pest management and you know approaches that uh that are hopefully helping to create um both sustainable and um uh economically uh successful um food systems on land i'm i'm just wondering how much we can learn as we uh do this aquaculture venture from from our terrestrial friends and what are some of those themes? I think we can learn a lot. Um, the idea of looking at your culture system as a holistic system that's uh, ecologically based, um, where you are producing food and resources and you are not um, harming the environment. So instead of relying on a wild harvested um, resource like we have been, if we can figure out how to culture this and uh, develop new products, um, it's going to benefit everybody. It's going to diversify our economies on the coast of Maine. Um, it's going to contribute to our local food system. And it's going to uh, help create a healthier um, uh, e e ecosystem in our aquaculture environment. Okay. 
Yeah, and um, I mean, I'm aware of expertise and like I, I mentioned, integrated pest management. I presume in, in aquaculture we have disease issues and things to, to manage around in that. And then there's waste management, Dana just alluded to that. Certainly we've come a long way on land of dealing with um, manures and other kinds of uh, runoff um, situations. We do a lot of business development support, I think, at the university and um, helping people understand what it means to market a product um, I'm just try trying to think of some of the other uh, colleagues up there that, that we can bring out on the water and, and um, try to make the, their expertise available to the sector. Yes, uh, certainly in terms of someone who might have uh, a question or an idea that, that they are looking to bounce off of somebody, um, some of the resources around the state that uh, an interested person might consider would be the Maine Department of Marine Resources. Um, the Maine Aquaculture Association, the Maine Aquaculture Innovation Center. Um, uh, at the University of Maine, there's a thing called the Aquaculture Research Institute, which has a, a whole group of people with different expertise, and certainly the Marine Extension team as well. They can give uh, any of us a call, and, and we'll try to help them. So the support network for someone who has an idea or a question, uh, maybe about a product or a process or something like that, uh, there is a, a fair bit of assistance for that person to get some more information and maybe take a step or two towards uh, some kind of operation. Okay. Thank you. Well, I want to thank the two of you for being here in the studio with us. You've been, okay, you've been listening to Talk of the Towns, and I'm just going to recap a bit on the phones. We had Mr. Tolliff Olson from the Ocean Approved Company down in, in uh, southern Maine. They're actively uh, growing and selling um, uh, seaweed products made from the sugar kelp. Uh, also, Mr. Uh, Matt Moretti joined us, uh, a grower who's been uh, diversifying his muscle operation into the growing of, um, of uh, seaweeds as well. Here in the studio, um, Sarah Redmond, who is based at the Center for Aquaculture, Cooperative Aquaculture Research, which is over in Franklin, Maine. That's a university facility. And Dana Morse, who is based at the Darling Marine Center, another university facility in Midcoast, Maine. Both Sarah and Dana uh, join me as a member of the Marine Extension team, which um, is uh, sponsored by Cooperative Extension and Maine Sea Grant. My name is Paul Anderson. It's been a pleasure being with you this morning. Thank you for listening. We appreciate your calls. Uh, once Ron Beard is finished feeding the black flies up north on his canoe trip, he'll, um, he'll come back and, and be bringing you talk of the towns in the future. Thanks for supporting Community Radio and listening to WERU. Your engineer today was Matt Murphy. Thank you, Matt. And uh, again, thanks for listening to and supporting Community Radio. Pacifica, this is Democracy Now! Democracy Now! is a daily